Welcome to Profiles. I'm Trish Curley. My guest today is David Williams, who is the founder and executive director of the Center for Constitutional Democracy and the John S. Hastings Professor of Law at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law. He is a constitutional advisor to a number of reform movements abroad, particularly the democracy movement of Burma and the government of Liberia, and most recently with the Democratic Party of Vietnam. At IU, he teaches and has widely written on constitutional law, constitutional design in multi-ethnic societies, and Native American law. David Williams is co-editor and primary author of Designing Federalism in Burma, which is widely read in the Burma democracy movement, and he is also the primary author of the soon-to-be-released first treatise on the meaning of the Liberian Constitution. David Williams, welcome to Profiles. Trish, thank you for having me. When you were a student at Harvard Law School, you and your wife, Susan Williams, clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was on the U.S. Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. Justice Ginsburg is now an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. And in 1998, you and Susan wrote an article about Judge Ginsburg in which you said, quote, she demands of herself and those around her adherence to a most exacting standard of analytical rigor. Second, she offers a depth of warmth and kindness grounded in a sensitive emotional awareness. It is her combination of these qualities that, to us, is the most striking aspect of her mentoring. Judge Ginsburg has been in the news a lot lately. She has. Um, What do you remember most about that experience clerking for Judge Ginsburg? Well, she's a true teacher. She was a teacher before she went on the bench, and she viewed her clerks um, as her students— and so her goal was to make sure that this was not a wasted year for us, not just a year in servitude, but a year in which we came out brighter and stronger and better grounded than we went in. And so I would describe her as actually being quite devoted to her clerks. And this was an instruction for us, an inspiration for us about how one might regard students um, in the future. Indeed, in a certain sense, the way we regard our doctoral students now. And it is this combination of analytical rigor and deep human warmth that is so characteristic. She's shy, even reserved um, in person, and sometimes from the bench she can be quite aggressive. But underneath, she's a marshmallow. Um, Underneath, she's really a loving and warm person, and she was that towards us. For a long time, she sent us um, birthday gifts for our kids on the day they were born. Did you see her every day? When we were clerking, absolutely, yes. Oh, yes. What kind of cases were you supporting her around? Um, So the D.C. Circuit um, has a broad range of jurisdiction, Um, so lots and lots of different kinds of cases that would arise within the district. But in addition, um, the D.C. Circuit is the Court of Appeals for most administrative cases, so big administrative cases, licensing drugs, putting in pipelines, allowing certain trade practices to go forward. These would be the sorts of things that we'd be looking at. So the D.C. Circuit really is a court of national jurisdiction for the big administrative agencies. So it doesn't sound like you touched upon social issues or social justice issues. Well, not so much. A little bit. Um, One of the cases that um, we were involved with when I was there was the case that reopened the Japanese-American internment camp policy during World War II. By that point, everybody knew that the policy was not only misguided but unconstitutional, and a lot more information had come out. And so the question was, could the case go forward or was it time-barred? Because it 
th- the, the, so much time had passed since the policy. Judge Ginsburg was on a, court, a panel that was divided, but we were in the majority, and we allowed that claim to go forward. Eventually, Congress mooted it out because they passed a statute declaring the policy unconstitutional and then making reparations available to the internees and their descendants. Are you still in touch with Justice Ginsburg, yes, I should say? Yes, we are. Oh, yes. yes, we are. Yeah, all the time. Every time we go to Washington, we see her. Susan gave a big lecture named for her in San Diego about, I guess, a couple of years ago, and we saw her for a long time then. So, yes, we stay in touch very closely. Earlier in your career, you wrote quite a bit about the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which, for those who don't know, is the right to bear arms. Yep. How would you characterize this aspect of your of your work? What was the nature of the writing, your focus? Well, at the time I came into it, um, the Second Amendment was not taken very seriously. There had been no Supreme Court precedent for over 100 years, and the Supreme Court precedent that was on the books was indeterminate. Um, it was widely viewed as the preserve of a bunch of right-wing kooks, and so no serious academic would look at it very hard. But I was writing at a particular moment, almost part of the zeitgeist, when interest was reviving in provisions of this sort. And at the time that I arrived, the field was divided between people like the NRA, who thought it guaranteed um, an individual right to guns for personal self-defense or the like, um, and those who thought it really only guaranteed arms for a state-run militia. Reading into the history, because again, there were very few cases at that point, so all we had to go on were the historical materials. Um, And reading into the history, what I came to see was that it really was far more radical than either side believed. It was really about revolution. It was really about arming the people so they could resist the government should they need to do so. Now, this is a radical claim these days, and it's not at all clear what it might mean today. And a big part of my, my writing is about pondering what it might mean today given that almost no one thinks it can mean what it once meant. That is, if it really is about revolution, we're talking about nuclear warheads in people's garages, and no one, even the most right-leaning pro-gun politician, thinks that's a good idea. So I viewed it not as an individual rights provision, but as a structural provision. It was by way of empowering the people as a political structure to push back, to check the government. Now, In this country, of course, as I say, it's very problematic what that might mean today. In a country like Burma, it's not at all problematic. And that writing from the Second Amendment flowed directly into the work that I now do abroad because I often advise armed resistance organizations for whom the right to keep small arms is a critical part of how they see their future. So getting back to the U.S., because Mm -hmm. we're obviously going to spend a lot of time on Burma, what are your views on the current intensity of discussion and activism around gun control and the use of force by police vis-a-vis the this, this Second Amendment? Right. The important thing to understand for me, from my perspective, is that gun control is one thing and the Second Amendment is another thing, and they don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. Now, that is, I know, a heretical view in the current state of discussion. Again, my view was that the point in the Second Amendment was to guarantee arms for revolution, There is not one word in the historical materials clearly indicating that the point was to guarantee arms for self-defense or any other sort of calling. So as soon as we leave the subject of revolution, we have left the Second Amendment behind. And since nobody is talking about revolution these days except for some people very much on the fringe, we're not talking about gun control here, right? So gun control is a separate subject. Now, I do have my own views on gun control, having spent so long around the debate, but I don't think the Second Amendment speaks to them at all. 
Do the conservative justices on the Supreme Court think that it does? They do. Yes. Um, and just very recently, we got a couple of cases um, after waiting a very long time. Again, as I say, the, the precedent before that was more than 100 years old. Um, and they do take the view that it protects at a minimum the right to own a handgun in your home for personal self-defense. Now, I believe that opinion is erroneously written. What they do is they start by saying it protects a personal right to own guns for revolution. They then acknowledge that there's nothing in the historical record indicating that it was a right to own arms for self-defense. But then they very quickly insist, but the right to own a gun for self-defense must have been included in the right to own arms for revolution. Meanwhile, when they then address the right to own arms for revolution, they rush to say, but we are, of course, not saying that the right to own guns for um, in your home includes the right to own things like assault rifles or bazookas or rocket-propelled grenades, which actually is exactly what it protects. Um, and so what they've done is they've cleaned up the Second Amendment and made it safe for people in posh Washington suburbs to own a handgun, but nothing more. Which case are you referring? Are you referring to one particular U.S. Supreme Court decision? Um, I Which am. It's the McDonald case um, and, and the Heller case. Um, so there are two. One held that a federal statute was invalid under the Second Amendment, and another held that a state statute was invalid under the Second Amendment. And you needed to have two different cases because um, the Second Amendment, by its own terms, applies only against the federal government. But the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause incorporates most of the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, against the states. And so it was a separate question as to whether or not the states were bound to. And in some ways, it was a more important question as to whether the states were bound because more of gun control law is done under, by the states than by the federal government. You've written also about the constitutional treatment of difference. Mm. What does that mean? I find it intriguing. So yeah. that's why I'm asking yeah, you that. Thank you. So this is a deep jurisprudential question. On the one hand, many Americans and perhaps most of the justices on the Supreme Court think that we're all alike. We're all individuals. When you peel away the layers, when you peel away sex and gender and sexuality and race and ethnicity and religion and national origin, what you get is the same self possessed of will and reason. We're all fundamentally the same under the skin. This is, the, of course, the classic American liberal commitment. And therefore, the best way to deal with us is to give us all the same rights, to treat us all as individuals um, under exactly the same set of regulations. Now, overwhelmingly, Americans recognize this as their national creed. This is the way they proceed. And when I teach American con law, this is what I'm teaching all the time. The rest of the world isn't like that, um, or at least most of the rest of the world isn't like that. For them, differences do matter. And so in a place like Burma, your ethnicity really is significant because they think it tells you something about yourself. And they therefore want to have those differences supported by or incorporated into the law. They think there might be different regimes of law for different kinds of people. And the way I initially ended up moving into this area was I taught Native American law. And this is the scheme of federal law that allows the tribes to govern themselves. This is the one really clear example we have of this in this country, where there's a radically different scheme of law um, for a different group of people. Now, of course, when Americans hear this talk that we're going to have different rules for different groups of people, they get very scared, and understandably so. Because Sounds like special rights. Special rights or even oppression, right? That is to mm -hmm. say this could be Stalinism. Um, mm -hmm. So you could either have small groups of people given extra help or you could have them 
extra oppressed. Um, and so the American answer is treat everybody the same. That's where safety lies. Um, in much of the rest of the world, that doesn't sound like safety. What that sounds like is um, forcible acculturation into the larger culture. Um, in a place like Burma, there are smaller groups who want to go their own way and govern themselves in their own way. And to be governed by the same set of rules as governs the majority group is to be governed according to the majority group's rules and therefore to be forcibly assimilated. And this they do not want. And so for the rest of the world, it's perfectly sensible to talk about treating difference in a good way and treating difference in a bad way. In America, overwhelmingly what we say is we ignore difference altogether. We don't treat it in a good way or a bad way. We treat everybody exactly the same way. Or at least that's the ideal. That's the theory. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us on Profiles, my guest is David Williams, who is the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Democracy at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law. Much of your... Um, written work in the 1990s, up until about 2003, it seemed, mm -hmm. focused on the Second Amendment, uh, guns and violence, and Native Americans and the law, as we've discussed. And then around 2003, things seemed mm -hmm. to shift. So, uh, and correct me about this pronunciation, who is Andrew Lian, and how did he change the course of your yeah, life? He did. He really did. Andrew Lian. Um, his chin name is Ngun Lian. So I had written a big book on the Second Amendment, and I was getting ready to write another big book on secession, but I was looking for something different in my life, and I was very conscious of looking for something different in my life. And for our 15th anniversary, Susan and I went to Florence, and I remember vividly walking across Florence saying to her, I need a cause that I can believe in. I need something overseas. I need longer-term relationships with students. I need to put all of this to work in the world. And remember, the two things that I've been writing about were violence and difference. And all of a sudden, Andrew Leon shows up on my door. Um, now, I had known him for a little while. I was advising his dissertation because he wanted to write about federalism in Burma. Um, but he came to me one day and he said, look, you've been advising me on this. Would you like to have a hand in this? Um, and at first I wasn't certain, but I said, well, let's put a toe in the water. And the Chin Forum came to Bloomington. And the Chin Forum um, is a group of Chin leaders who had been writing a proposed state constitution for Chin State in Burma. Now, at this point, this was all pie in the sky. There was no chance that it would ever be operationalized. Um, now that the negotiations are ongoing, we're going back to it. But at that point, it was really just by way of hoping for a brighter future and of getting themselves ready to think about the changes that were ahead of them. So we met for a whole day in the faculty conference room in the law school going over this draft. I guess there were probably 12 people there and talking about how it could be made better. And at this point, I was just a baby in constitutional design. I mean, I was just – I knew enough about constitutional law that I hope I could offer them something. Um, today, I would have done it completely differently. But back then, that's what I could do. Um, and at the end of the day, Pulianuk stood up, and Pulianuk was a Chin leader um, who had been invited by the government to advise them on how to change the Burmese constitution. And he said, I think there should be more federalism in the Burmese constitution. And in return for this favor, they imprisoned him for years. He went in with two good arms, came out with only one. Can I interrupt just a quick question? Federalism. Let mm. them, let's clarify that, mm. if you would. 
So when we're talking about federalism here, what we're talking about is geographical devolution. So we're going to take powers away from the central government and move them toward more local governments like mm. the states. Okay. Um, and we, when we call it federalism as opposed to decentralization, what we mean is it's constitutionalized, so it's hard to change. And so the result is that local people are going to be more able to govern themselves in their own way because some of the powers have been taken from the center and given to their own more local government. Now, if you have geographically concentrated ethnic groups, this can be a tremendous boon to self-determination. And so, for example, if the Chins in Chin State, if the Chin State government has power over language, they can make sure that the Chins are allowed to speak the Chin language. And the Chins are an ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, traditionally, the, often the central government um, in Rangoon and later Naypyidaw would not allow the Chins to speak Chin, especially in school. Um, they would burn down churches because the Chins are Christian um, and the Burmans, the majority group, are Buddhist. And so there was, at least at various points, a concerted effort to Burmanize, which is the term we use, the Chins and all the other minority ethnic groups as well. Now, a hedge against that is to take the power over religion and language away from the central government and give it to the more local governments so that they can ensure that their people get to live in the way they want to live. Um, and this was the cause that Pulianuk was speaking for. But again, although they asked, they didn't want to hear it. Um, they imprisoned him, and they imprisoned many, many of the people that I work with. Many of them have this story of a long time in prison and often severe maltreatment. And so Pulianuk, on this day in Bloomington in the faculty conference room, had only one arm. Um, and the sleeve of his suit was pinned back. Um, and so when he stood up, he was a vivid physical reminder of everything that the Chin people and indeed everything that the ethnic nationalities of Burma had gone through. And I thought he had every right to be bitter. Um, but what he said instead was, we believe this is a new birth for Chin State. We believe this is a new way forward. We will have to keep our guns. We know we must keep fighting. But we also know that ultimately the answer lies in law and not in violence. And this, of course, is what I had been thinking about for 15 years, that the reality is that law is grounded in violence. Too many lawyers look away from that. We need to be aware um, that governments are founded in blood, and therefore everything we do exacts a toll, that governments are not clean and safe. But nonetheless, ultimately, we have to believe that there's a way to yoke violence to right reason, ultimately to law. And this is what he had, was saying, and he was saying it because he had seen it on the ground. So I was inspired. And at dinner that evening, um, one of the leaders of the Chin Forum said, have you ever been to Asia? And it's funny because my uncle was in the State Department, spent most of his life in Asia, but I'd never gotten over there. And I said, no, I haven't. And within a few months, I'm over in the jungle um, outside of Chiang Mai in Thailand near the Thai-Burma border to meet with a much larger group of leaders from a much more diverse group of ethnic nationalities. So out of this meeting with Puyanuk and, and Andrew Leon, Leon mm -hmm. was there as mm -hmm. well, uh, and the Chinese, uh, the Burmese Chin Forum, right. you established the Center for Constitutional Democracy at IU's Maurer School of Law. I did. It took a little while. For a little while, I just did this work. Susan eventually joined me in this work. Um, at our first meeting in the jungle, um, it was just supposed to be me. But there were women there who said, we'd like somebody to speak on gender issues. Will you speak on gender issues? 
Um, and I said, well, I could, but there's somebody very close by who could do a much better job speaking on gender issues. So on two hours' notice, immediately after lunch, Susan ended up doing a session on gender issues. She now does a broader range of design issues, though her focus still is gender. So first there was me, then there was Susan, and then Lauren Robel, who was at that point dean of the law school, said, I think you need a center. Um, And so we started to put one together. Um, And she gave us a building where we've been ever since. And the center has grown and grown and grown. It's a very different organization from what it once was. And so what is the mission of the Center for Constitutional Design? The mission of the Center for Constitutional uh, Democracy Democracy. um, is is, um, really twofold. The first is to study issues of constitutional design, to figure out what works where and why, and to do that not in theory but on the ground by being involved. So there's a scholarship mission of the center. Um, That involves the faculty members. It also involves um, our PhD program. We have a PhD in law and democracy, which I believe is unique in the world. Um, It's multidisciplinary. You have to take courses in anthropology, political science, law, and area studies, plus there's a language requirement. And you have to specialize in a particular area of the world, though you also have to do comparative work. Um, There's an internship requirement. There's an externship requirement. Um, The goal here is in part to produce academics, but even more, it's to turn out reformers who can go home and help their countries. So that's the scholarship part. The other part, of of course, is the advising part, that our goal is to help people think their way out of the cul-de-sacs they found themselves in. Very frequently, people end up in civil war not because they're bad people, but because they have the wrong institutions. Um, and they will continue to hurt each other until they change those institutions because they're ill-adapted to conditions on the ground. We are very much not a best practices sort of center. We don't think there is a best practice for the world or for anywhere else, that everything has to be adapted to particular conditions on the ground. Um, and so we stay very closely connected to our partners. Um, really, I think only after about 10 years are you in a good way to do really good work. It takes that long to know how things work. There are lots and lots of international experts who will jet into a new and opening up area, spend four days doing a seminar there. It's the same seminar they did last week in Yemen, um, but now they're in Burma or they're in Sri Lanka or wherever. I don't, to be honest with you, think that's very useful. And so our work is very different from that. In a a Bloom Magazine article from Mm. April, May 2015, you're quoted as saying, rather than comparing existing constitutions or even building documents based on best practices, as you just indicated, Mm. constitutional design starts from the understanding that different nations require different types of government. Mm -hmm. Some settings might call for a presidential system. Others are more suited to a parliament. You have to have the right constitution for the right circumstances. So... In other words, as you, as you were just talking about, there's no cookie cutter for democracy right. building. So talk about how you and your team help determine and then advise reform movement leaders and coalitions uh, on which model is best for them. And I really, wanna, I really want us to understand sort of the step-by-step mm. process. Okay. For example, using Burma as an example, yeah. how did you enter this? I know you had the, the meeting, the, the day-long meeting that kicked it off. But really, what is that, what is that pr- overarching process? Yeah. So the first thing you have to do is you have to understand the country. That means you have to understand their problems. It means you have to understand their culture. It means you have to understand the stories they tell themselves because people live by their stories. And the first thing they were going to want to do is tell you what happened to them and why it matters to them. Um, Because different things matter differently to different people. 
some countries want above all to be much richer than they are now. Others, every, well, everybody wants to be a little richer, but others don't care that much. What they really want, though, is for their local culture not to be disrupted. Now, those are two hugely different sorts of problems, and this is just an illustration. If the goal is to get richer, you want development quickly. If the goal is to preserve your local culture, you want to really control development. Um, and as a result, where you put the power over development is going to vary depending on which of those stories is the critical one. Now, the reality is that constitutional design is enormously technical, and so I can give you some examples about how this works, but to actually kind of talk about it as a uh, you know, as a whole package would take at least a semester. I teach one course in it. Susan teaches another course in it. But I'll give you one example. Proportional representation, um, which is an electoral system, allows um, for the very accurate recording of people's preferences for political parties. If you want to have a wide range of parties so that people all feel like there's somebody in the um, legislature who speaks for them, you want PR. In a PR system, you'll have seven or eight or nine or ten parties. So, You're talking about parliamentary. Or it, you can also do, do proportional representation in a congressional system as well. Um, it, it's an electoral system that, that is indifferent to what kind of legislature you have. And uh, again, that's true for technical reasons. But the point is if you want to be sure you have a Green Party, a Libertarian Party, maybe a Fascist Party, if you want to have a Pacifist Party and a Socialist Party and a Christian Democrat Party and all of those, you want PR. And as a result, a lot of citizens will feel there's somebody who shares their ideology in the Capitol. Now, we don't have PR in this country. We have first past the post. And, of course, there are an awful lot of Americans who feel like there's nobody in Washington who shares my views, right? If I'm an ardent environmentalist above all, there's nobody there who does that um, because we have big tent parties and we have big tent parties because of our electoral system first past the post. And so as a result, ideological diversity first past the post does not do well. Now, you know what? First past the post does do well, though, is it does really well on representing small geographical areas because first past the post uses single-member districts. And so you can be guaranteed that there may not be anybody who shares your views in Washington, but there's somebody who shares your neighborhood in Washington. And maybe that really matters because if we're in a rural, undeveloped area, we want somebody out there campaigning for us. Now, that's what our system does well. So when we look at a place like Burma or the different states of Burma, we ask, you know, is ideological diversity the most important thing for these people or is geographical representation the most important thing? And that varies from country to country depending on the size of the country, depending on the relative levels of development in the city and the countryside and so forth. Um, and so these are the sorts of things one looks at. And um, for Burma, what is the case? What is the best um, choice in that regard? Oh, they're arguing about that right now. Uh, my, my own view is that, for the most part, geographical representation is critical. Um, and so I do think first-past-the-post is right for them, more or less. Um, that is what they have right now, and that's a good thing. It's a very complicated question because there are other aspects to this issue that I haven't gone into. But the one of the really overwhelming facts about Burma is that in central Burma, there's an enormous amount of development right now. In the rural areas, much, much less. Indeed, there's still civil war. Um, and so there are a lot of people now going to Burma saying it's a miracle in Burma, and that's because they've only seen central Burma. Well, central Burma really has changed. That's right. The rest of the country is being left behind. 
Um, and therefore, it's critical, I think, that representatives from up in the hills be a NAPIDA. And for that reason, I think first past the post, at least as an element of the electoral system, is vital. You are the executive director mm-hmm. of the center, and Susan Williams, your wife, mm-hmm. is also in a leadership role. Mm-hmm. What, what's the difference between what you do and what she does? Mm-hmm. Not much. Um, <laughs> technically, I'm the executive director only because I was doing this for about a year and a half before she came on board. But other than that, we're really just a team. If there is a significant difference, she does more of the work around here than I do. She runs the doctoral program. She's in overall administrative charge, and I try to stay out of her hair. Um, I do a little more work you know, overseas, um, largely because Burma is our biggest program, and Burma is really my program. I mean, she's involved also, but that's the web of relationships that we have really is mostly with me. She also is connected, as I say, but but there is this distinction. She also does a lot of work with women's groups in Burma as well. Um, in Liberia, um, for a while, I would say I was taking the leadership role. That's beginning to shift now. I think we're about, you know, about the same at this juncture. But, you know, we're a married couple, so the reality is this, this varies over the years depending on what we're doing. Um, for a while, when our kids were in high school, I was traveling a lot. She was going to stay home with the kids um, because we couldn't bring them with us in high school. We brought them with us all the time when they were in elementary school because we could pull them out at a moment's notice. I, of course, have to ask, how is it to work as a married couple, yeah. doing the work that you do, and for so so for so long, yeah. you went to law school together. You've worked together since you've you've both taught, and you still do, right? Yeah. At at IU's mm-hmm. Marrow School of Law. Mm-hmm. So, what's yeah. your secret, David Williams? Well, <laughs> you're right. I mean, we went to law school together. We clerked together. We um, started at Cornell together. We came to IU together. Our offices are there's one office in between our offices, but we're on the same hallway. We've written articles together, two of them. That was the hardest thing we ever did. And then um, we've been in the center together. And I can't imagine not doing it this way. She's my best friend. And one of the great joys has been able to be working with her. I'm speaking with David Williams, who is one of the uh, leaders, formal leaders of the Center for Constitutional Democracy at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law. He also teaches a variety of law classes at the Maurer School of Law. Actually, before we shift to, to talking about Burma more specifically, I wanted to ask, you were talking about the fact that you bring together academics and activists. What are some of the typical challenges experienced by those groups um, between the scholars and the practitioners, really? Yeah. There are scholars. There are scholars at IU who worry that if you become an activist, you impair your scholarly objectivity. And there are, have been people here who have been uncomfortable with us for that reason. Now, I have to say that by and large, this university has been wonderfully supportive of us in this respect. 
Law professors are a little different from other professors because many of us are activists to begin with. There's no expectation that you're going to stand apart. You, you know, most law professors advocate for causes. That's what lawyers do. And so that's built into the role of being a law professor in a way that it might not be built into the role of, say, being a chemistry professor. Um, so it's not that big a step. In addition, the stuff that you can learn by being an activist, you can't learn any other way. And that's an aggressive claim, but I mean to back it up. I've seen stuff that other people haven't seen. And I've seen it because I'm out there working on the ground. And so people let me in the room. Um, I was just at Loki Law in Burma um, at a summit of the ethnic armed organization. So this is the top leaders of all the ethnic armies in Burma. And their negotiating team had just agreed on the text of a nationwide ceasefire agreement with the government. But their negotiating team had to bring it back to the leaders of the armies to get approval. And ultimately, the leaders of the armies did not give approval. They demanded some changes. Now, I was the only outsider in the room during that period. And I was in the room because I've known them for 12 years and because they know I'm trying to help them get a good deal. Now, I don't mean an unfair deal. I mean a good deal, a just deal. And as a result, I've been able to see stuff that other people have not been able to see that flows into my scholarship. If you just show up and you say, we'd like to study you, please, um, they're going to leave you in the antechamber forever and then eventually send somebody very junior out to say a few things to you. And so from my mind, the activism and the academic side of these are mutually supportive. Now, that's not to say you mightn't be tricked. Um, there is an inherent risk of seduction here that you're going to decide your partners are great even when they're not. But you decide they're great because they'll talk to you. And so, of course, they must be special. There's this huge risk, and you always have to keep aware of it. It's part of why, in my mind, it's so important to do this as a team so we keep each other honest. If you did it by yourself, that risk would be much greater. Is the center required to work in tandem with the U.S. State Department? We're not required to work in tandem, but we do. And by, I don't exactly mean in tandem. I mean, we keep the State Department and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee updated about what we're doing. We stay very aware of the State Department policy and approach. I haven't been to Washington to meet with State Department people for a while, but for a long time I met very regularly with Kurt Campbell, who was the Assistant Secretary for East Asia, to talk about Burma. And indeed, it's not just that we, I kept him updated, it's that I briefed him on what was happening in the hills. Has there ever been an occasion where your center and the policies of the U.S. government have been in opposition? I'm happy to say no. That's not to say that that mightn't happen at some point, but I'm happy to say so far no. My experience with the U.S. government is it mostly wants democracy around the world, um, and that's mostly what we're trying to do. And so they've really left us alone to go our own way. Nobody has ever tried to co-opt us to become an instrument of the U.S. government. Um, I think overwhelmingly the State Department people understand that if they tried to do that, we'd be much less effective, that we need to be perceived as being independent. The U.S. ambassador to Burma, Derek Mitchell, has always been very, very supportive. Um, he understands exactly what we're doing, and he's very happy that we're doing what we're doing. Now, I can imagine instances where this might not be the case. Saudi Arabia, for a while, we thought we might be doing some work in Saudi Arabia, and we might yet. Democratizing Saudi Arabia, in theory, the U.S. is in support of this. In practice, what they really want is stability in Saudi Arabia. 
And so I can imagine that some role that we might have there might be more rabble-rousing than they would have in mind. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying I can imagine that might be true with, given it certain administration's policy towards Saudi Arabia. We might be going into Kurdistan, and here we, we, in fact, will coordinate very closely with the State Department because, of course, that's an area of terrific strategic interest for the U.S. I think there's not even been a hint of conflict up to now because we've been in areas that are not of great geostrategic interest for the U.S. Um, we have a brilliant student coming from Pakistan in the fall. He is interested in involving us in Pakistan. I'm not sure whether we're going to do that or not, but if we do, obviously that's an area where we're going to have to coordinate very closely with the U.S. government. Burma and Myanmar. What's the difference? Why are there two names for this mm -hmm. country? In Burmese, they both mean the same thing. Bama and Myanmar both refer to the dominant ethnic group, which in English we tend to call the Burmans. Um, they are two different words but they have two different histories. Um, traditionally, the name was Burma, Burma. That's the name that the British used. That was the name on independence. That was the name in the brief period when they had parliamentary democracy. When the military took over, they changed it to Myanmar. Now, again, both are Burmese names. They are both not, it's not like one is a foreign name. And they both mean the same thing. They're just different usages. But the military government decided to change it to Myanmar to distinguish it from the old British name, which they thought they were trying to get away from. Um, and at the same time, they changed a lot of other names inside Burma. So, for example, people in the ethnic resistance will refer to Rangoon, um, but uh, the military government traditionally called it Yangon, um, which is just a more Burmese pronunciation of the same word. Which name you use, therefore, is deeply political. People who were supportive of the military government traditionally used the names that the military government gave it. People who were not used the older names. And again, remember, this is not just the name that it went by with the British. This is the name that it went by during that brief period, about 15 years, when it had parliamentary democracy. Um, and as a result, a lot of people in the ethnic resistance, a lot of people in the democracy movement, what they say, what I say is if a truly democratic government ever decides that it really wants to call this country Myanmar, I'll call it Myanmar. Um, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, Burma is not yet truly democratic, um, and there's been no thought given to what it actually wants to call itself. Why does Burma seem more interested right now in democracy mm. than it used to be? Yeah. This process was very complicated. Everybody wonders why the transition. Um, in 2008, Burma adopted a constitution. It was adopted in a sham referendum, and the process that produced the constitution was itself a sham process. It was managed by the military government down to the ground. So the military got the constitution it wanted to get. And yet, nonetheless, we've seen some democratization. Why is this? Well, I think it's several-fold. Um, the first is that the outgoing general, Tan Shui, mishandled this transition. He thought that military people were going to continue to dominate. But in fact, he gambled wrongly. He had, by the end of his time in office, made a lot of micro-deals with people in order to buy support. He had entered into ceasefires with the ethnic armed organizations, many of them, the biggest ones, the most powerful. He promptly revoked those ceasefires. Suddenly, you've got war again. He made a lot of generals 
take off their uniforms, leave the military, and campaign for office in the new parliament. They are now civilians. Now, in the army, you want to become a general above all because it's going to make you rich, because you're going to control some income and resource streams. These guys all thought that they were going to be multimillionaires by the time they were 50, and suddenly they're living on a civilian legislator's salary. Their interest now is suddenly to shore up the power of the civilian legislature, and that's what we've seen President Thane Sane start to do. There's a real breach between the civilian government on the one hand and the military on the other. So part of it is that just that Tan Shui, I think, bungled this transition. So there are now people with lots of different incentives pulling in different directions. But overwhelmingly, I think the reason for a move to some democracy and to a new system is China. Burma is tired of being dominated by China. Burma realizes that if old trends went on, it would be more and more dominated by China. China does, in fact, tend to see places like Vietnam and Burma as the southernmost provinces of China. Mandalay is a Chinese town. I was just in Kachin State. Everybody eats Chinese foods with chopsticks up there, and there's lots of investment. So a huge part of this was a real turn toward the West. They want real U.S. involvement as a hedge against China. And we made it very clear um, that the only way we would warm up to them is if they moved in some kind of democratic direction. So this is, I think, an example of successful American foreign policy. I was asked to ask you about, to, to tell the story of the time that your assistant was taken by the Chinese government oh. while he was working on the Burmese constitution in China. Right. The Kachin Independence Army is the most powerful resistance army in Burma right now. And their head is a guy named Gun Ma, who is a wonderful leader. And his headquarters is in Liza in Kachin State. And so he asked me to come in to see him. And Andrew wasn't actually working on the Burmese constitution at this point. We were just going in to see Gun Ma. Now, because I'm an enemy of the state, uh, or I was an enemy of the state, I couldn't fly into Rangoon and then get up to Liza. I had to go in through China. So I flew to Beijing and then to Kunming and then to a town called Mongxi, and the KIA picked me up there to drive me in to Liza to see Gun Ma. And normally that border is completely open. Um, you just drive right across. There's no attempt to, to police it at all. But as soon as we arrived at the airport, um, we were told that the Chinese government had asked Gun Ma, are you meeting with Professor David Williams? So they knew we were coming somehow. They probably cracked our email. And they sent out the army to close down the border. Um, and I don't know how many men, but a lot. So suddenly this border is now completely sealed. Um, and we get to the border, to the town there. And we're going to drive across, but we can't because they're not letting anybody across. So we stay in a hotel overnight, um, waiting to see what's going to happen. And they send even more guys out to close down the border. And I tell the KIA, that's fine. Um, tonight what will happen is I'll walk across through the jungle at night. I've done that before in other parts of Burma. But they come back to me and they say, no, actually, there's so many guys out here. They're patrolling all the jungle paths. You'll never be able to get across. So now I think, all right, we'll just wait them out. I mean, how long can they keep like a regiment on the border just to keep one guy out? And so we wait a little while. And eventually what happens is when Andrew and I were doing this sort of work, we were very security conscious. So I would walk him to his room at night. He'd go inside. He'd lock the door. I'd go up to my room. I'd lock the door. I come downstairs at 8 o'clock one morning. I bang on the door. No answer. I bang on the door. No answer. I knew immediately that he had been disappeared um, because the Army was keeping very close track on us. They'd been following our car and so forth. 
So he's gone. What I do is I then walk outside, and Shueli, this town, is like a Wild West town. It's a border town. Um, and I kind of show myself because I know I'm being watched. And I go back, um, and I'm sending emails to my wife, Susan, in a mixture of French and Latin, asking her to get in touch with our friends in the State Department to help us out. And I figured the Chinese government sooner or later would be able to you know, translate those, but they'd have to find somebody who speaks both French and Latin. It would take a little while. So I'm emailing her with this news, and there's a knock at the door. Um, and here's, there's, a, there's a translator and a guy from the local police and a guy from Yunnan State Security. The guy from Yunnan State Security is really in charge, but he stands back behind the others. And he says, your friend has been very bad. He engaged in prostitution last night. Now, of course, this is the charge they always get you with when they want to kick you out of the country. So they had picked Andrew up um, about midnight the night before and interrogated him through the night, asking, why are you here and who are you meeting? Because, of course, they knew we were with the KIA. So I say to this guy, I think Andrew better pay a small fine and sign a confession, and then we should go back to Mangxi. And at the time, I'm figuring we'll meet with the KIA in Mangxi. That's okay. We'll just do it here in China. So that's what happens. They take us back to Mangxi. They process Andrew. Partway through the processing, somebody from the State Department um, gets a hold of them because Susan had emailed Kurt Campbell, the Assistant Secretary of State, late in the evening, and 15 minutes later, he's got somebody on top of this. So this, I feel that I was very well served by my government during this period. They're shocked because what they tell us in so many words is usually we keep people for two days. This is three hours later. How did they find out? So they figure it was people important, and suddenly the cathexis changes, everybody becomes very nice. I should add, the police chief was very nice. Um, he understood this was a political matter, that the prostitution was a trumped-up charge. He was a cop. He just wanted law and order. So at this point, they say, look, you guys must be very tired. Um, now, of course, what I felt like saying was, of course, Andrew's very tired. You interrogated him all night. And so they bought us an air-conditioned hotel room so we could stay there and sleep until our flight back to Kunming. But we were only there for about two hours before they came back and they said, you can't stay here anymore. We've laid on a traditional Yunnanese banquet for you because they had figured out that I like Chinese food. So we go back to the police department um, and we eat this traditional Yunnanese banquet and it's quite lovely and everybody's very civil and so forth. And um, the police chief toasts me and I toast him and it's all utterly surreal because, of course, we're actually their prisoners. Now, I was never convicted of anything. They didn't want to lay hands on me, obviously. So they used Andrew as a way to kick me out of the country. And eventually what happened was Andrew and I went back to Beijing. We stayed, what, maybe a week in the Airport Hilton Hotel. Um, it was a very nice prison, but it was a prison awaiting our transit home, and then we came home. So um, I didn't get to see Goodman on that trip. I've since seen him half a dozen times. Um, indeed, I think he's coming to Bloomington sometime in the next few months. He's sending us a ready stream of students to take our master's and PhD courses. You really can't talk about Burma without at least referencing probably the most famous Burmese there is, who is Aung San Suu Kyi. Mm -hmm. What is, I know she's part of the, she's a member of parliament now. Yeah. She's an elected official. She's, uh, but give us a sense of who she is, her history, and mm -hmm. leading up to this, uh, her new role as mm -hmm. part of parliament. And, and also what relationship your group may have with mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. um, so she's the daughter of General Aung San, who was sort of the George Washington of Burma. He helped found the country. So she had very famous name recognition. 
Um, but through all the difficult years, she was out of the country um, because she was involved in diplomatic work and eventually ended up in the UK, where she married an Oxford Don, and two of her children now are subjects of the British crown. She was then back during the protests in 1988 um, and got heavily involved and eventually helped um, create the NLD, the National League for Democracy. She did not run in the early election, um, but she was a very important symbolic leader. And the government put her under house arrest for a very long time. She wrote a number of great books. She gave regular talks, which sometimes the government permitted, so great crowds would come to her um, housing compound and listen to her speak. And, of course, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. So she was an icon of the hope for Burmese democracy. She spoke often about the need for ethnic self-determination, though she is herself very Burman. She's very much of the ruling part of Burmese society. The military government loathed and despised her to a degree that is pathological, so they would not allow her any space at all. When the first elections were held in 2010, the NLD decided to boycott the elections because they rightly understood that the 2008 constitution was fraudulent and they wanted nothing to do with legitimating this new system. But more reform came along, um, and Burma really did start to change. Now, there's huge amount left to go, but there was meaningful change, and she saw it. And so the NLD contested at the by-elections and won almost every seat that they contested, and that includes Aung San Suu Kyi, so she is now in parliament. People were of two minds about whether it was a good idea for her to contest. I am of the view that it was a bad idea for her to go into parliament. I think she was a supremely effective symbolic leader. Now that she's in parliament, she is no longer speaking the way she used to speak. She is not speaking about the need for ethnic self-determination. She is speaking very little about the violence against the Muslims in Burma. Obama was there recently and criticized her for this, and I think rightly so. She's decided that she's going to play ball um, with the government. I understand that she thinks that she's got to tone it down because if she continues to speak the way she used to speak, she will not be effective in making deals with the government, and I get that. But there are lots of people who could make deals with the government. Indeed, there are probably better deal makers than Aung San Suu Kyi because she's not a politician. This is her first time in elected office at all. There is nobody who could play the role that she used to play, which is to be the voice of conscience in Burma. So I'm disappointed at the role she is currently playing. We have not worked closely with her because, of course, we work mostly with the ethnic minorities who are about 35 to 40 percent of the population. That is not her central concern. The big question in Burma now is will she be allowed to stand for president? And the Constitution effectively outlaws her from doing so because if you have children who are the subjects of another government, you're not allowed to run for office. So she's not currently allowed to be president. Um, there was a recent effort just the last few weeks to amend that provision a little bit, though it still would not have allowed her to come in. And even that, they re rejected. They was that, that provision created for her? It was created specifically to keep her out of office. Right. I'm speaking with David Williams, who is the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Democracy at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law. You just got back from... A trip to Thailand, I believe? To Thailand and Burma. To, to continue your work. Yeah. What was the focus of, of this trip? 
so this trip actually had several different elements. The, the first is, as I mentioned earlier, I was in Lokilaw at the summit of the ethnic armed leaders to talk about the nationwide ceasefire agreement. And I was there to advise them on whether the current draft of the NCAA is a good idea or not. I was technically an observer, so I couldn't speak from the floor. There were ways for me to work through other people to speak from the floor, even though I was not my voice. Eventually, by the end, they started asking me questions from the floor, so I was able then, in fact, to speak from the floor. So the big question there was, do we sign this nationwide ceasefire agreement or do we go back and ask for changes? And the conclusion of the summit was we go back and ask for changes. And I will say this about the summit. I came in with 15 changes that I thought were critical. 13 of them were already on their list that they were going to change anyway. So it was a remarkable proceeding. They were very focused. They argued about language the way that lawyers argue about language. They clearly mean to keep this nationwide ceasefire agreement. If they didn't, they just would have signed it. So they're really bargaining for a better position. It was wonderful to see it happen because in years past, here's what passed for negotiation in Burma. The government would say, no. And the EAOs would say, oh, OK, I guess it's no then. The, the, the whole concept of negotiation was completely absent. This time, they talked about the draft, the two negotiating teams, and they went to the EAO summit. The EAO leaders made some changes. They went back to the government. The government got very angry. After three days, they simmered down, and now they're talking about it again, and the talks are going well. There's real bargaining going on for the first time. And this is the fulfillment of a dream for us because 12 years ago when we started to do this, people said, why bother? The military is always going to be in power. There's never going to be any change. And what we kept saying was sooner or later there will be a bargaining table and we will be sitting around it. And they will need to know what they really want and how to formulate their demands. And we hope we can help them clarify their thinking. It's not our thinking. It's their thinking. But we can help them think more clearly about it, we hope. And that's what Loki Law was all about. It was also great, as I mentioned earlier, because I was the only outsider in the room. And it was amazing to watch. It was an amazing thing to watch these people from a very different part of the world do this kind of work. After that, I came back to Chiang Mai, and there were a bunch of meetings with some of the leaders of the ethnic armies in Chiang Mai. Chiang Mai is a wonderful place. We always like to headquarter there. And so there were a bunch of smaller memos that we had developed for them that we needed to walk through, um, in particular how the process of constitutional change is likely to go from here. And then we went inside Burma, and for the first for years, I was on the blacklist, so I couldn't go in. Now I can go in, and I can go out and see all the ethnic areas that I'd only ever heard about before. So we went to Loika, which is the capital of Kareni State, where we did some work with civil society groups. And then we went to Michina, which is the capital of Kachin State, which will be really critical in the forthcoming months. And we started to build our network there. The Maurer School of Law at Indiana University now has a Ph.D. program in constitutional design, and it is the only program of its kind in the world. What are the qualities you look for when considering a student for the program? What are the, what are the hard skills, but, but really the soft skills, too? Yeah. Yeah. What's That's, the profile? Yeah, it's a very insightful question. Our ideal student is somebody who's going to take this very academically seriously, but who is also going to go out and change something in the world. That's why we're doing this. So we're looking for somebody who the phrase we always use in the center is somebody who leans forward in the foxhole, somebody who causes things to happen, who gets things done who has the people skills, the political skills, the diplomatic skills to cause things to happen. Now, the, the kind of the platonic version of this person is typically somebody from another country who will go home and be a reformer in that country. 
But it doesn't have to be somebody from another country. It can also be an American. And we have several American students in the program um, who intend to go abroad and do something like what we do in other countries. So it's somebody who is deeply engaged and somebody who is shrewd, because you have to be shrewd to do this work. In an article you wrote entitled Don't Worry, Be Guilty, which is about U.S. policy in regard to reparations for indigenous people, you say, quote, American exceptionalism is a profound part of our self-conception. We are God's chosen nation. We hold ourselves to higher standards. We stand for and are defined by an ideal rather than a real politic, close quote. I interpreted the statement not as your personal view, but right. your, your view of a, of a core aspect of, of American, white American, mm-hmm. historic self-identity. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? It is. And uh, let me stress, number one, I didn't pick that title. Um, <laughs> that was the, the, the version that you read is a shorter version of a longer academic piece that I wrote. And then a journal wanted to pick it up to do it in a shorter version. But you're right. that That's not how I see America, but I think that's how many Americans see America. And I do think that's damaging to us. Other countries have an easier view because they realize that they're sinful. And there's a deep streak in America that wants to believe that we are not sinful. And part of that's hooked up to our individualism so that we're responsible only for the things we did. And as a result, we're not we're not responsible for anything that was done in our name in the past, such as slavery or racism um, or the extermination of certain native peoples. And the whole idea of being guilty in that way is so terrifying to us that we can't allow even a little bit of guilt in. There's got to be this sense of absolute purity in the world. I think very few countries have this as a deep part of their identity, and I think it's crippling to us. Now, that's not to say that I think we should go around feeling guilty all the time. But there are degrees of guilt. And the reality is when things were done in your name in the past, even if you didn't do them, you bear some of the weight of that guilt. I do believe that's the case. It should not be crushing, but it should form a part of your moral calculus in the present day. David Williams, thank you so much for joining us on Profiles. We really appreciate it. You're most welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.